Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. This week features the second interview in a two-part series with Daniel Ash and David Jay, lyricists and songwriters behind Love and Rockets, Bauhaus, and multiple other band and solo projects. I interviewed Daniel and David separately with a similar set of questions. The success of their projects can be attributed, in part, to their distinctly different approaches to writing lyrics and crafting songs. Today's episode features David Jay, with Daniel Ash's interview published earlier this week. I spoke with Daniel and David while they were preparing for Love and Rocket's first U.S. tour in 15 years. Named after the underground comic by the Hernandez brothers, Love and Rockets announced themselves to the world with their radically unique take on the classic temptation song, Ball of Confusion. This debut proved that they were going to be a force to contend with. It became a huge seller and a popular club hit in the U.S. and Canada, where it also went gold. The legacy of the band has only grown with more people realizing the extent of their influence and generations of new fans discovering them. The list of artists who cite their influence is impressive. The Flaming Lips, The Dandy Warhols, A Place to Bury Strangers, Jane's Addiction, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, Beck, Maynard Keen, Dubfire, The Pixies, and many more. As a bonus, David agreed to share lyrics from an upcoming project. David, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you. I get the sense that writing lyrics is something you enjoy doing, not something you have to do as a responsibility for a band or as a solo artist. In your book, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, you mentioned being astonished by the incisive beauty of the poetry of Jeremy Reed and later working with him in a recording studio. What are some of the influences that sparked your interest in writing and helped you shape your approach to crafting lyrics? As far as poetry, the first poetry to really grab me, I suppose, was um, Dylan Thomas mm. at school. And I was very, very arrested by that to such a degree that I started to emulate Thomas. And my English teacher took me to task over this and one time would wrote in, I was particularly proud of this poem. But it was all, you know, Bible, black, pro black, a lot of black in there. And uh, he's scrawled in red, this is Dylan Thomas, not you, be yourself, see me. So I saw him afterwards and um, he explained. And I, I, I understood what he was talking about, but that was a big influence. The same teacher was Mr. Elderkin, was our English teacher, and he was very influential. And he was a bit of a maverick. He was one of those classic maverick teachers who would um, really sort of march to his own drummer. And he wasn't in favour with the other teachers there. He was a bit of an outlier. Mm -hmm. Consequently, he would go off of the syllabus and he'd really introduce things to us that he thought we should know about. To, to the to the degree of actually not talking about literature at all, but how to wine and dine a young lady. <laughs> Things like that that are indeed important, you know. 
but he also um, he tells us about the the uh, the war poets Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen. But he would literally sometimes throw the the um, the the class the book you know that we're supposed to be reading from across the room and bring out something else, and we'd read from that. D. H. Lawrence or you know some some filthy poetry that <laughs> with artistic that had artistic merit. And one time he came in and he had a record player set up on his desk. And this was extraordinary. You know, we'd never seen anything like this. Yeah. And there was this usual sort of chuckling and uncomfortable noises. And he just waited for us all to settle down. And then he, and then he didn't say anything. He just put on a record. And he played Dylan, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, didn't say anything. Let it place the end. Put that off. Put on the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby. And then he and then he told us to take out our Dylan Thomas books and go to a certain page. And then he said, I'm, "Before we start reading this 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 chapter, I just want you to understand the connection here that." The first record I played was by Bob Dylan and the second one was by the Beatles. And the Beatles were very influenced by Bob Dylan, especially in their lyrics. And without the gentleman who wrote the book that you're about to read, Bob Dylan would not have influenced the Beatles in in the way that he did because Dylan was influenced by Dylan Thomas and probably named himself after Dylan Thomas. And so there's a connection here. And this just completely brought literature to life for me. And then I read Dylan Thomas, and I read it through new eyes. You know, I mean, you're so fortunate. That's similar to the kind of experience I had in tenth grade. Uh, a creative writing teacher introduced us to E. Cummings and more contemporary poets, and it completely changed my whole perception of what poetry could be. And that it wasn't this stodgy thing that I couldn't relate to, but it had all these different textures and meanings. So yeah, that is the big difference. I think if if you if you have the right Teacher in high school, it can make a big difference. Yeah. And throwing away the standard, you know, things that have been done a million times is the first place to start. Not that they're not good, but they may not be as relatable. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And my my um, best friend in that class, Dave Exton, who later became the guitarist in my first punk band, he was a very, he was a very smart kid. Very intelligent, but a but a bit of a rebel. Uh, and he turned me on to to Rambo and Baudelaire mm-hmm. when we were like fifteen, sixteen. And he so he was very influential. And also Leonard Cohen. And uh, and then Patty Smith came along. Yeah, and she was referencing Rambo, and that. That again, that sort of really kind of um, added a splash of more colour to those French symbolists. And I saw connections there, you know, with rock and roll and those poets. And that was really exciting. Well, that's a perfect setup for my next question. It's almost as though I scripted it knowing what you're going to say. But your, your lyrics frequently have a storytelling quality, reminding me at times of Bob Dylan when I was writing these questions. That's what came to mind. Bound for Hell from the self-titled Love and Rockets album is one of many examples. You wrote, the engine with human blood was damp. 
The headlight was her brimstone lamp, and then for fuel I shoveled in bones, and the furnace roared with a thousand groans. Just love that. Uh, the song is so rich with imagery driven by story. Uh, what are your sources of inspiration, and how do you approach blending personal experiences with pure invention and mixing them all up? Okay, well, that one, that is um, a case of appropriation, really. <laughs> okay. Because that that is basically, it's, it's, it's a, an American ballad from the 19th century. I had a book of American ballads I was really taken with that I, I picked up on tour once. And uh, and that is one of those. And I, I sort of, I elaborated upon it, yeah. you know, and I owned like the whole, the, the first part of that piece is my own invention. And it, and it was written to lead into the, the already conceived and written American ballad. I changed a few little lines here and there, but that that is you know that that's a an unusual case there of that kind of appropriation. Oh, po poets are the original remixers. Poets are the original remixers before sampling a, and everything else. Sure, especially with like ballads, because ballads you know that's a that's a form that um, has been handed down. Mm -hmm. For decades and decades, and and uh, that's how it it keeps alive by being cast in a contemporary light, you know. And it's and it shows it's testament to the the strength and the power and the potency of those that original form, the ballad. Yeah, it's a very powerful poetic structure. Actually, Dana Joya, who I interviewed recently, a former poet laureate of California, uh, was trying to find a way to tell this story of his relatives, and he ended up writing a ballad because it got it across in the most sim in the most simple, straightforward, and a way with a ton of momentum built into the way the ballad structure is formed. Terrific for setting to music. Yeah, yeah. For me, something that that um, kind of lit my imagination was um, Froggy Goes A-Courting, <laughs> which is a kind of ballad. Yeah. Traditional folk tale, you know. And I, there was something about that, the, the lyricism of that. I was very young when I heard that, like eight, you know. All these things, they just all seep in. Yeah, especially if you get them that you get them early enough, then they they plant a seed. That if it's later, it's it can still be planted, but it's much harder. Yeah. So I've had a couple of my poems set to music and transform, and a couple others transformed into short films. But in those cases, the poems were basically left unchanged, and then the artists that I was working with reinterpreted them. I'm fascinated by the crafting of lyrics into songs, something I have not done directly. How the lyrics influence the music, how the music influences the lyrics. How do you approach getting the balance right between the lyrics and the music? Because ultimately the song structure has to succeed in the end. Well, with me, it's nearly always the case that the lyrics come first. And usually in a, in a burst, like a damn burst, and um, it just comes out in the flow. Quite often the first line will dictate the kind of meter and the, the flow of it, the rhythm. And I just go run with that. And then I have that form, and then then I'll pick up a guitar. Very rarely a piano, sit down at the piano, and it's that it's that the, the form of the lyric that really 
dictates the form of the music, the structure, and it, it's very easy for me to add the music once I've got the once I've got the lyric down. And then it's a matter of going back and honing the lyrics, just burnishing. So maybe maybe drilling a little bit on that burnishing. What are the things that need to change to make it? the types of things that need to change to make it work as a song that you may only discover when you've started introducing music? Sometimes you can change the tense, so it's like past tense becomes present, future, or um, it can be the little words in sentences, the but or then. You know, is it the, um, the little words that influence... The context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Um, there's little subtleties. That that's what I mean by like honing it. So on this whole um, topic of revising and tweaking and getting it just right, how do you learn from the way audiences respond to your songs? To the extent that they're singing along with you, to the what they what they respond to, what they don't respond to. I realize it's different than like. A, Stand-up comedian will take a year to hone a set and they're working the same jokes and throwing them in and taking them out and modifying them. But there's a lot of work leading up to a tour where the album's been cut. So there's a version of it that's kind of been locked in and there isn't as much of that. Maybe a new song gets sprinkled into the thrill of audiences here and there, but it's not workshopped with the audience in the same way that a poem is workshopped or a comedian. So do you learn anything from the way audiences respond to music that you can actually do anything about Absolutely. I mean, I, a song that comes to mind that's a good example of this is one called Goth Girls in Southern California. Yeah. And I recorded that very quickly after writing it. And it has evolved since that recorded version. And I, I've, for several years, I played a lot of house gigs. So living room concerts, literally in people's living rooms very intimate and I love doing those shows mm-hmm. and of course have that a very intimate connection with the audience and you can hear you can hear the most subtle reactions you know and what I really love is a, a, a titter and a if not a hearty guffaw <laughs> you're talking about it's funny you're talking about a stand-up comedian but I like to get the laughs you know and that and I do like sprinkle a lot of these songs with little witticisms, and that's a good example. I mean, it's it's it has a uh, it has a comedic a comedic element to it, let's say. And um, so I would sometimes in, in the spur of the moment change a line, and I'd get so I get a reaction, a noticeable like a, mm. a laugh, and I think, oh yeah, that works. So then that would become the fixed, the new fixed lyric. And I have gone back and, in some cases, re-recorded songs because they've mutated so much, you know. There's a song called Crocodile Tears and the Velvet Cosh, which really mutated. And originally, that was a bit of a put-down song directed at somebody else. But then I I didn't really feel comfortable with that later on. So I changed it into the opposite, and it was self reprimanding and I like that form. Mm-hmm. And I also felt more comfortable with that, with that form, you know, the self-deprecation, you know. So I'm, I am the bête noir, you know, of the subject. And then it became, that song be- became both 
uh, somebody else and myself. Then it went all the way around to how it originally started, but with different lyrics. So that was a, that's a good example of a song mutating over the years. So that's fascinating. So it sounds like that if it is possible to do, you can a song can really benefit from getting tested in front of, uh, you know, an audience, a real audience, maybe not a stadium audience, before it gets um, locked in and find sure. ways to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, with that song that I mentioned um, first, the uh, Goth Girls in Southern California, how that came about was that I was, I had a, a guitar. I had a, I had a, uh, an endorsement deal with Taylor Guitars in San Diego. And they, they were, they'd given me a couple of guitars. And one of them, I had a problem with one of the guitars. So they were setting that up for me. And I had to go down to pick up that guitar. So I was driving down approaching their their workshop and i saw it was a blazing summer's day in san diego and i saw this very cute goth girl with a black parasol with funereal garb and a little <laughs> orion you know funeral dress and little booties and from the back you know it was just so sort of charming and I just, there's the whole notion of, you know, that I, I see this a lot. And uh, that title came to me, you know, Goth Girls in Southern California. And then I was just kind of on fire with that idea. And when I got into the, uh, into Taylor's, Taylor Guitars, my guitar wasn't ready. They said, it's going to be about half an hour. Mm -hmm. Here's the guitar, amuse yourself so in the green rooms so i just sat down and i wrote this song i wrote that lyrics out and like the music came by the time i got my guitar back the song was done then i recorded it a couple of days later so that's an example of that that flash of inspiration yeah and i've had that feeling too where a poem just falls out of me and it's i must have been cooking on it subconsciously for a while and it just was ready to be taken out of the oven and then poof here you go yeah yeah so my young, my Gen Z younger daughter is joining me for the upcoming Love and Rocket show in Oakland uh, at the iconic Fox Theater. If you haven't performed there, it's an incredible theater. And uh, and I'm going to see you guys tomorrow. Uh, I'm recording this the day before Cruel World, which will be fantastic. Yes. It didn't take much convincing to get my my younger daughter to come along when I connected the dots from Love and Rockets to Bauhaus, and I gave her a playlist covering a subset of your extraordinarily rich catalog. She had a question that she wanted me to ask, which is. How do singer-songwriters perform very personal songs night after night without losing it on stage? And or maybe if if it's a song that isn't you know something you have a, a really tight personal connection to, how do you keep the energy and emotion in the performance uh, without the emotion overwhelming the performance? Or the other way around, you've just sung it so many times you're just sick of it, <laughs> but you have to pretend you're not. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a matter of of mentally tapping into where you were at when you wrote that song. Sometimes I, I take the original lyric sheets around with me and it's things about those sheets like a coffee stain mm. or, you know, some, just the way I wrote a word and crossed something, crossed one word out and wrote another word. That is a mnemonic device that brings back very um, 
readily, to a degree, where I was when I wrote the song. So I, if I if it, I'm feeling like it's slipping away, I'll just pull them out of the folder and just like study that for a while, and it comes back. It's very evocative, you know, of that state. Other times, it's just a matter of mentally doing that, just thinking back to why you wrote that song. And also, it can be it can, it can change. I mean, the context of a song can change. So that originally it was personal. You could you could have a conversation with somebody who has taken this song and made their inter- own interpretation of it, or applied it to some experience they were going through, and they tell you this story. Mm-hmm. So new, a fresh experience to draw on. You think of that, and that keeps it alive. So there's different ways of keeping the songs alive. Well, the song, I want to switch uh, in a different direction now. The songs, The Unreliable Narrator, Sacred Monster, uh, on the Night Crickets album, and the song Mosaic from the album Missive to an Angel from the Halls of Infamy and Allure, you're terrific at titles, by the way, are examples of spoken word poetry backed by an instrumental track uh, what was it about these lyrics that worked better as spoken word backed by music? How did that choice happen? It just, it becomes very obvious. Um, the, and again, it's the form really dictating the method. And it's it's not something I have to really think about or, you know, mull over. It's just very obvious to me. Oh, this needs a spoken word mm-hmm. uh, interpretation or performance or to get it across, you know, it's just... It's very clear. Sometimes you get a song where you've got a section of spoken word and, and the rest is sung. But again, it's just, it's just really obvious to me what, what the form should be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's in the category of questions that I ask other poets in the podcast or people ask me where it's hard to put my finger on it. You just know from enough experience and intuition what it, what it needs. Yeah, it's more intuition than anything else. Well, as a poet, collections uh, of poems are typically written over years. Each poem's written as a standalone piece of art, usually, not always, but usually. Uh, finding a way to turn individual poems into a cohesive book happens after the poems are written. You have to kind of figure out how to put them together. When writing lyrics, what role does the band you're writing for play? The expectations of the band's sound, the expectations of the fans... Uh, how does that play in crafting the lyrics and what role does the album you are creating the lyrics and the songs for play in, in this mix of creating a unified thing? And I still love albums and I hope the album as a concept never goes away, even though the physical form, whether it's vinyl or CDs is, you know, all the vinyls has come way back <laughs> clearly. Um, but that, that concept of a contiguous block of things that fits together in some way. So uh, talk to me about how you think about that. Well, really, it doesn't. Uh, it's not an imposition on the material. The material just comes, mm-hmm. and once it's there, or even when it's in the process of becoming, it becomes very clear what its ultimate destination will be. Whether that's a solo record or with a band, or wi- and which band. Yeah. Maybe it's something completely new and I have to find the band, which I have done many times just for that session, you know. So it all comes from just from the, the form. I don't write, I don't sit down and think, I'm going to write a song for Love and Rockets. 
I just write something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that could work with Love and Rockets, or that's obviously Love and Rockets, or this is a solo thing. This is very personal, you know. So that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So you, once you've written them, they may naturally slot into one thing or another, or some new thing. Is that kind of how Night Crickets came to be, as an example of that? Well, Night Crickets came about. Um, I mean, due to due to the uh, pandemic. We were all in uh, different locations and we wanted to work together. And we, as an experiment, we tried a couple of tracks, which really, really came together very quickly and very well. And we decided to carry on. And uh, we would just take turns in trading files and, and just keep that going until we all agreed that the track was done. And with that, with my my lyrical input for that, it's a bit different to have worked in the past in that it was usually very spontaneous and down to like the day of the session or the day before. And it was just scraps of bits and pieces lying around, just notes, um, half-written lyrics, newspaper headlines, newspaper articles, stuff I'd overheard on, you know, um, on TV, on the radio. So a real sort of a bit of a montage, in effect, came into play there. And it just felt right for that project. Love and Rockets has created some extraordinarily beautiful songs. And I think one of the things I really enjoy about that project in particular is the way it combines such distinct styles. And likely that's because you and Daniel, who I spoke to, have very distinct and different ways of, of approaching things. Uh, some, you know, some beautiful song examples that immediately come to mind, Rainbird uh, from Earth, Sun, Moon. It can, the, the poetry, the melodies, the sound structures, the whole way it's crafted really is magical. And you wrote, Rainbird swoops through the chimney pots and rain. Rainbird flies to the edge of a gilded cage, hiding in the spotlights of a famous stage. He tries to become invisible whilst stealing the front page. I think in particular, you truly write things that could that are standalone poems, whereas there are some lyrics that in the absence of the music, they, they've lost quite a bit. Clearly, you're, as, as I'm reading that, I'm immediately thinking of the music and that they're inseparable. At the same time, though, I think if I saw the lyrics by themselves, they would be mm. really rich. So um, talk about how you approach the sound and especially these songs that are so hauntingly beautiful i mean just where that comes from knowing that that's not really answerable in any concrete way that song i wrote about daniel reticence over wanting to carry on and, and make music which it, it has been the case for years and still is and we'd made two albums with love and Rockets, and it was successful and he had cold feet about doing the third album uh, for various reasons. And so I wrote that song when we didn't even know if we were going to make a third album, and it was about him. And I only told him that it was about him once we made the album. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a way to think about it is the emotion of, like, that, it's just such a beautiful, there's an emotion, maybe do you, when you write a lyric, does an emotion get attached to it, and that emotion then translates into the, 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 the style and the type of music? It's that connection of dots I find so fascinating. Yeah, always. Yeah. So 
Yeah, and you, as I say, I, I usually write the lyric and then I'll immediately pick up the guitar and write the music. And it's very rare that that music doesn't come. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so you have to see that the lyric is very fresh. It's newly conceived and it's very readily present in my consciousness. So that consciousness goes into what I play on the guitar and the way I, I won't think, you know, I won't think what I'm doing. I won't think about, oh, this chord, that chord could work with this. You know, I just start moving my hands over the, the fretboard. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll quite often I'm, I'll tune the guitar differently, put it into an open tuning. And that's really random. Mm -hmm. And I'll, my pure instinct, and I'll just be tuning something, you know, the E down and, the A up and until I and I'm it's all over the place and I'm just like I don't know what I'm going for really but I'll know when I hear it yeah. and I just keep doing that until like oh that's there's something there I hear that inside the guitar I'm gonna I'm gonna fish that out you know and I just like fine tune it then and I'll have this weird open tuning and then I'll just play with that and then a nice thing about that is when you've got an open tuning because what happens is that the chord shapes no longer make sense because I know what those chord shapes should sound like, but you're making the same shapes. It sounds completely different because the, the, the tuning is different. So that makes the whole process very fresh again. And I don't know, no idea what these, these chords are called, if they are called anything. <laughs> but I, I just know when I'm playing the right chord. And I mean, like, like that song Rainbow, that's a, that's a very unusual rhythm as well. I've never played that rhythm before. It's quite of a hard kind of hard diff little rhythm to play that especially when and when singing it at the same time it's weird uh, but that just came out you know and those chords came out and it felt it felt right that's i can't uh, i mean it. the symbiotic what i'm taking from this and it's different than from other songwriters i spoke to this symbiotic relationship between the words and the music and the music and the words um that, that's really fascinating as opposed to other you know, other bands where they everyone comes in with riffs and they and then someone has the task, a task of kind of which they may not necessarily enjoy of creating lyrics. Whereas for you, it seems like it's completely organic, like the, the lyrics and the music, they just come together. Yeah. So a couple more questions. So while uh, many Love and Rocket songs have individual credits for words, songs including It Could Be Sunshine, Hot Trip to Heaven and My Drug have shared writing credits. In the situations where the writing credits for words is shared, is that because the two there are really two separate songs that have been combined, like A Day in the Life by the Beatles, which were truly two totally separate songs that just work so well together? Or is it because it's collaborative, or did was there significant editorial input that justified the shared credit, or, or it's a mix of all those things? Mix of all of those things. Um, and there are some some comparative examples of Love and Rocket songs, you know, that you can compare to the Beatles process of uh, dovetailing, mm -hmm. you know, of uh, Haunted When the Minutes Drag. That was one of those where we, Daniel and I literally turned up to rehearsals with half a uh, song each. And we were both very keen to, to do our songs, you know, to bring our songs to the band. And um, we put those two sheets down on a table, and I remember looking at them and thinking, "No, these kind of these could work, you know." And then we just all just started 
playing. That's the way we would always work. When we work in the, if I have, we haven't, sometimes we would come to the band with the chords, you know, the, a kind of structure. I did that with Dog End of a Day Gone By. It's pretty much there. But then the band gets onto it and they, it mutates and it becomes a band thing. But with that um, Haunted, there was no music. And we just sort of started playing. And and we didn't even decide who was going to go first. But I just, I I imagined my lyric going with what we were, this kind of chugging thing that we were doing. And I just started singing that lyric, you know. The word that would best describe this feeling. And it just fit perfectly. And we all like look at each other and nod. And then we just continued with that. And then we sort of got to a, like, where's this going to go? So then Daniel got the the acoustic and he said, I've got the, like this thing out. This, just, I haven't finished it yet, but it's there's this thing. This could work. And then he starts playing that. And then, oh, yeah, the, try singing that, that lyric with it, you know. And he does, and immediately, like, it's a connection. Now, okay, so we all pick up, you know, pick up the bass and chemistry on the drums, and we try it as a band. And it just, it's very organic, mm-hmm. like you say, of, uh, how things come together. Um, other cases, it'll be either myself or Daniel who would have would have written most of the lyric, and then the other, but the other guy chimes in and like changes something here. And you have to be very open-minded and not too possessive about it yeah. for it to be a successful collaboration, of course. Um, but when that process happens, then it's, you know, you're just recognizing the input. Well, what advice do you have for emerging musicians and bands or established bands that struggle with writing lyrics where it's a task versus a, a joy? And um, what's, what's well, and maybe you, your starting point from the earlier discussion had, you had such a rich not indoctrination, a rich exposure to diverse forms of poetry that it just it just opened up your mind really early. Uh, and not everybody has that. They may not have had that really early on. What uh, what advice do you have for bands that struggle with lyrics but maybe doing everything else really well? Get somebody in the band who's into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Force it. Yeah. And that if that's the case, that it, they're really struggling, that's telling you something. It's yeah. telling you that about to be a lyricist. Yeah, a lyricist. Doesn't even have to be somebody who's in the band. It's just somebody who can write lyrics. You know, and I know that's an unusual situation, but not not totally um out of question. Look at Bernie Taupin, you know. Right, right, yeah. Just a lyricist. Somebody who writes lyrics. That's what I say. I'm now gonna pass the mic over to David, who'll read lyrics from an upcoming project. I've made an album, a spoken word. Uh, poetry that's going to be released probably at the end of this year. Oh, exciting. Fantastic. And called Rakia, who are based here in LA. Amazing musicians. Rakia is spelled R-A-Q-I-A. And it's uh, acoustic guitar, acoustic piano, and uh, violin. And we did these recordings very spontaneously. I would send them a sheet of the poem that we were about to do and then the day before the session and then we wouldn't rehearse it and we'd just go in and then they would play me something just like a bit of what they were going to do to see if it was in the right ballpark and it always was and then we just record and I do the, the vocal with them live and we do it in one take mm. 
and we have a whole album of this. It's going to be called The Mother Tree, and The Mother Tree is a very long poem that takes up a whole side of vinyl, and that's a song I wrote for my mother a couple of days after she she died. Mm. That's the, um, the centerpiece, if you will. But then there are these other pieces. Um, this one I wrote the first time I went to Memphis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just it was an impression. It's called Elegy for Beale Street. Ghosts of cotton pickers moaning low on a fragrant breeze that mingles with a thick stench of cooking fat, clinging grease from a thousand low-rent grills and diners. Street musicians howling on the corner of Handy Park as they did in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even in the 70s and 80s when the wrecking ball moved in. Gob iron and green bullet classed like a precious thing, and French kissed for tips for the hell of it as if in prayer. More ghosts crowding in. Robert Johnson, young and handsome, brilliant and doomed. Fury Lewis, Memphis Slim, Memphis Willie B., Sun House, Sleepy John Estes, Blind Blake, Sonny Boy Williamson, all ghosts now crowding in. Mm. Hard toil and sweet salvation, wood and steel and sweat, a sawn-off bottleneck for a slide, a guitar made from a cigar box, chicken wire and nails. This music needed like food and drink, substance for souls beaten down and bleeding. Warm southern nights of old times, jazz spilling out, mixed with profanity and laughter from the holy bars on Beale. Card sharps, quick as lizards, making their killing play. Bruised angel whores presided over by bare men in razor-sharp attire, cops turning a blind eye, unless it was election time. Bee-wee saloon, where everything happened nightly, where W.C. Handy invented sheet music and the craps game never died. Gone. All gone now. And you have to look hard beyond the new neon in order to see the thing that it once was. But something of the soul remains. That flame was a fierce and burning, blazing light. That flame was a fierce and blazing light. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And that uh, reminds me of an experience I had last year where we had this intense go into a museum, write some poetry a week later, clean it up a little bit. And then we did a performance where there was a jazz duo and they didn't get to see the poem at all. I just got to whisper in their ear 10 seconds before the gist of the poem is this. And then I started reading and they improvised. And it was the most amazing experience. So it's a more extreme version of what you just described. Yeah, it's really magical when you don't have that much time. to. Th- you don't have any time to think about it. You just do. Yeah. Well, I'm a great believer in that. So that's one of the pieces. And of course, you know, it, it has the context of the music, which is great. I mean, it has this really kind of bluesy, moody piano part. And um, I play harmonica on it. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's... Uh, that album's going to be out, as I say, hopefully later in the year. And it's going to be, we're trying to time it to coincide with the publication of my 
uh, Book of Bones. Oh, I was about, I was going to ask. I mean, it just, it would love, I'm just, I'm so excited for that to happen. Um, I'm really excited to see your book. Uh, have you done that before or have you, is this your first no, collection? No. I didn't it's think awesome. so. I was looking and looking and I'm pretty sure I hadn't missed it. So that, that is, I am so excited for that. Yeah, and they 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 go back to the early eighties, <laughs> up to a couple of years ago, and you said about you know the the process of putting together something like that, it's sort of comparing it to sequencing an album. Yeah, and it is like that, you know. But it, it again, it was it was interesting to although those poems were written over decades, there's a certain cohesion there that can be pinpointed by the sequence by how which i didn't do it chronologically i did it thematically yeah yeah how one track rubbed up against the next track um, track (laughs) (laughs) and now did you every poem every poet i've talked to including myself that the you end up printing out all the poems and you put them out on a family room floor or a big space and manipulate them in space because it's hard to do it digitally and uh other people put up post-it notes on walls with just a reminder of the poem and find a way to and stare at it for weeks and weeks and weeks and move it around yeah yeah and it, it, it reveals, it reveals itself. Yeah, it does. It does. The pattern is there. You just, you just have to keep playing with it. Well, I am really excited for these two projects. Um, and yes, hopefully they line up at the same time. They sound like they'll complement each other. Well, I must mention another project as well. That's sure. Connected with all of this, because again, it's spoken word. And this is um, an album. It's all finished. Uh, we're going to start shopping it around and it's, um, the project um, is, is there's three of us, Richard Ellis and his wife, Sheila Ellis, who are in a wonderful band called Annabelle Lee. Mm-hmm. Big musician. Sheila's a wonderful singer and Richard is a guitarist, composer, um, but they're both poets and myself. And we have this, this project called Fugue State, and it has a particular mood to it. It's very different to the mother tree because that's all acoustic and natural instruments, but this is more, uh, there's an ele- electronic element to it. Sizers, mm-hmm. program, music, with some, um, I play bass on it, my fretless bass, and some classical guitar. So it's a, a real sort of uh, combination of elements. Um, but that's another you know, it's a strong uh, spoken word record. No, I think it's uh, just, it's really, really cool to, to hear spoken word set, set over music. It just brings something out of the poetry uh, in such a different way. It's just really, really cool. Lisa Marie Simmons is a wonderful singer, songwriter, jazz musician who, um, who I interviewed last year. And she does intersperses spoken word with tr- like more traditional and modern jazz. And it's just wonderful to hear that mix of sounds. So, yeah. Of course, music is, is an intensifier. Yes. It's the intensifier, you know. That's really what it's for. And when you align it with, with poetry, you know, then it really comes into its own and its essence. Absolutely. Well, David, I know you got uh, you got a bunch of concerts this weekend, which I'm going to be enjoying both of them. And I really appreciate you taking the time right before all that. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to all of these upcoming projects that you've uh, shared today. You know, I love this because it's right up my alley. 
Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.